The third tremor that sent shockwaves through the society. Atheism, number one. Intellectualism, number two. Spiritism, number three. Spiritism. Verse 9 says, In spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. Verses 11 and 12, he mentions again spells and sorceries and charms. And if you look at the historical and archaeological finds of of ancient Babylon, the primary focus of their religion gang, of their pagan system, was witchcraft and sorcery. That's where they delved the most. That's what they focused on. And we know how the Lord feels about that. In fact, back in Isaiah chapter 8, He already said, 8 verse 19, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? In another place, why go to the living on beha- go to the dead on behalf of the living? Just go to the Lord. Spiritism. Paul makes this clear, and, and listen to this, gang. Turning to any spiritual thing other than the power from God, any spiritual thing other than the Lord Jesus, is nothing less than turning to the demonic realm, because He is God and there is no other. So if I am turning to any type of spiritistic thing, it's demonic. It's demonic. Wiccan, the church of Wicca, is demonic. There's no such thing as good and bad witchcraft. It's all demonic. It denies Christ. And there's in the spirit world, if you're going to deny Christ, you're going to the demons. And Paul makes it clear, 1 Corinthians 10.20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God then I don't want you to become sharers and demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And people say, well, good, I'm glad, because we don't do that. I hate to pick on this, because there's been so much good that's been done. But the higher power of AA. If you are not naming Jesus Christ as your higher power, guess what your higher power is? It is demonic. Mm -hmm. You go to the nondescript, you are going to the world of demons. Now, if if you happen to, and and perhaps some of you in here have, if you've gone through Alcoholics Anonymous and it has changed your life and saved you, and your higher power, you name as Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, because He is the only higher power. But we live in a society that is more and more saying, hey, whatever your God, that's cool. Hey, no, there's one God and the rest are all demons. So if you're worshiping Jesus, you're good. If you're worshiping any other God or any other thing or any vagueness out there, it's demonic. That's what the Bible teaches. And by the way, it leads to the fourth issue that shook Babylon, which is also demonically related, and that is astrology. Atheism, intellectualism, spiritism, astrology. Look at verse 13. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moon, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. And lest anyone think that astrology is just, it's just no big deal. The zodiac and the signs and horoscopes and all that. It's really not that big a deal. It's just playing around over here on the side. Gang, listen. The phrase here ends with a warning of hell itself. 
Verse 14 is talking about hell. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. In other words, here's a flame that will only burn you. It's not a comforting fire on a cool winter's eve. You know, it's not coals to get warm by. It is a fire that burns but does not comfort. A fire that burns but does not console. And gang, in our country, we're talking about tarot cards, palm reading, psychic friends network, horoscopes in the newspaper. Hey, if you're looking up your zodiac sign and you're checking your horoscope, would you do yourself a favor and just stop? Because all you're getting is the advice of the demonic realm. And by the way, it comes straight out of Babylon. Straight from Babylon. The signs of the zodiac are Babylonian. It's the same Babylonian paganism, mysticism, and idolatry we're talking about right here that people still worship when they open the Sunday paper and go, well, let's see, I'm a Virgo. Born at the end of September, so there's got to be some significance here. There is significance. It's significant demonism. And I can't say that any more strongly. These things are sadly prevalent today. Ironside tells a story of a passenger in a train. He's riding along and he's reading his Bible and sitting there and, and this well-dressed gentleman comes along and looks at the man reading his Bible and says, Oh, you're, you're reading a Bible, aren't you? Do you believe in that book that you're reading? Huh. I didn't think any educated people really believed in the Bible anymore. I mean, you look like a cultured man. I'm surprised you're reading it. You know, I believe the day will soon come when people will not believe in the Bible any more than they believe in the ghosts and witches that our forefathers used to think were real. (laughs) And the man reading the Bible closed his book and smiled and looked up and said, My friend, when people reach the place where they do not believe in the Bible anymore, they will believe in witches and ghosts again. That should chill us to the bone because that's what's happening in our country. We see people who are saying, eh, close that, set it aside, we don't really need the Bible. And they're turning to witchcraft, and they're turning to spiritism, and they're turning to astrology. And they're saying, these things are fine. Ghosts. How many TV shows now? Ghost hunters, you know? These people go into these places with these little lights on their heads, and you can't see half the show, it's all dark, you know, anyway. anyway why do we watch that stuff? Uh, I don't. I was slipping. Didn't <laughs> Back in Isaiah uh, 47, verse 9, listen to what he says. He, he describes the outcome of all of this with two word pictures. These two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. Loss of children and widowhood. Now, very literally... All at once, the daughter of Babylon lost their husbands and lost their children. And they were just bereft of these things immediately. As a country, Babylon would have no progeny. No generations of little Babylonians to follow after them. And they would have no king, no no husband, no covering over them. So they would be like childless women that are widows. I thought about them and thought, you know, atheism, intellectualism, spiritism, astrology, all of these isms that are so permeating this culture today, they lead to the same outcome. Same outcome. What do you mean? Loss of children. If we go down this road of all these isms, there is no progeny beyond this life. It ends when we die. There's nothing eternal. 
Listen to this line from the fourth servant song regarding Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see, when you go the route of Jesus, our progeny, our offspring, is eternal. It doesn't end. We will not lose the children of faith. But if we go down the road of the isms, loss of children and widowhood. What do you mean widowhood? Eternity without a husband. Jesus comes along and says, I will be the groom, you be my bride. God says to Israel, I will be your husband, you be my wife. But if you go the road of the isms, you lose your husband. Note the last chilling verse of chapter 47. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way. There is none to save you. What does this mean? A multitude of nations and people interacted with Babylon. Tons of people put their stock in Babylonian currency. They put their faith in in Babylon's economy. They trusted in Babylon as a nation. I'm talking about foreigners, not, not you know Babylonians, but people who merchants and they worked in and out of them were with Babylon. And they trusted this city financially, militarily, culturally. And God is saying they will experience the same loss that you Babylonians are about to experience. And that's some scary stuff. Might that also apply to all who have trafficked with Babylon through the years? who have followed the corruption that began with Nimrod and has run all the way up to current day, if we trust in the isms that belong to Babylon, we will go the same way Babylon goes. Which way is that? Let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18, which reads, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory, And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Down in verse 8 he says, For this reason in one day her plagues will come. Pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. By the way, did you note, if you are skipping over, look at the end of verse 7. She says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am not a widow. Well, where did John get that? That's directly out of the passage we just read. That was what previous Babylon said. I'm a queen. I'm fine. I'm strong. I'm powerful. And future Babylon is going to say the exact same thing. And the kings of earth, verse 9, who committed acts of immorality and live sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. What John does here, and this is astounding to me, is he... He points out that what Isaiah said 700 years, 790 years plus earlier, almost 800 years before, what Isaiah said would happen to that Babylon in that day, John says, it's going to happen again. 
I'm seeing it happen again. And everyone who interacts with and connects with and relies on that Babylon is going to go the way that that Babylon goes. And I realize that's a heavy word. But gang, what is the word of the Lord to us? Get out. Come out from her. Come out and be unique. Be different. Be separate. Do not be of this world. Don't trust in Babylon. Don't put your faith in the machines of this world. Trust in the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 48, and we're going to do this fast, we come to the end of the first third of the book of Consolations. The contrast of the one true God with the idols of man. And the Lord now turns His gaze back to Israel. Verse 1, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who come forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city. And they lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is His name. The Lord's saying, hey, you wear My name, but you don't act like My people. You call yourselves by Jerusalem, the holy city. You say you're the people of the Lord. You call yourself, in this case, Jews, but you're not acting like it. Jeremiah's similar judgment. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9 says, Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. How can you call yourself one of my own, but do what they do? How can we call ourselves Christians by the very name of Christ, but do what the world does? We can't. Sunday we talked about this, not to belabor the point, but gang, if you love Him, you obey Him. The proof of your love for Jesus Christ is your obedience to Jesus Christ. And your obedience is an expression of love, not legalism, not religion. You're not doing these things to prove your righteousness. You're doing these things in absolute thanksgiving for His righteousness. And you do it because you love Him. You know, I say to my kids, don't obey me because I tell you what to do. Obey me because you love me. They go, well, you're guilt tripping me, Dad. No, I'm serious. I want you to do what I ask you to do because you love me. And you trust that I know what I'm doing here. Please don't tell my children that I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, keep that between us, alright? Verse 3 going on, he says, I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead is bronze... Therefore I declared them to you long ago before they took place. I proclaimed them to you so that you would not say my idol has done them and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. God says two things right here. He says, I told you long ago what would happen. I told you what would happen so that you couldn't credit your idols. In other words, back before they even came into the land, back before they would ever hear of Bel or Nebo, Marduk, or Molech, or Ashtoreth. Before they were introduced to those idols, God said, here's what's going to happen to you, and I'm telling you now, so when you get introduced to these idols, you won't think the idols are the ones who told you. 
And what did He tell them? Deuteronomy chapter 30. I won't read it right now, but the first five verses, God says explicitly, before they enter the promised land, through Moses, the Lord said, you're going to go into the land, you're going to live a certain amount of time, but you're going to go into captivity. And when you return to the land, you're going to be changed. You're going to be different. In other words, you're going to go into captivity, but I'm going to restore you from captivity. I told you, the Lord says, long ago what would happen. But watch this, verse 6. You have heard, look at all this. And you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time. Even hidden things which you have not known, they are created now and not long ago. And before today you have not heard them, so that you will not say, behold, I knew them. In other words, the Lord said, I told you long ago what would happen, but I didn't tell you how I was going to do it. Why didn't He tell them how? So they couldn't be smug. So they couldn't say, "Ah, we knew God was going to take care of it. Not a problem. We knew how He'd make it happen. He said, no, I'm doing something brand new right now. He says, created now and not long ago. Now that doesn't mean that God was making up the plan on the fly. Doesn't mean right there he went, okay, we need, we need a way to get these people out of Babylon. Angels, any ideas? <laughs> no. God knew exactly what he was doing, but he didn't tell the people. He presents it to them for the first time. Isaiah 44 and 45, where he named Cyrus, it's a first time thing. He had never said that name before. He knew the name. He knew it long ago. But he didn't say it. Because he wanted the people to realize not only did he know what he was doing back then, but he knew exactly how he was going to do it, and he reveals it to them now. And in verse 8 he says, You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago your ear has not been opened. Because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. That's interesting. You've been called a rebel. Nimrod, the founder of Babylon. Remember what his name means? The rebel. And now God's calling his people after the founder of Babylon. You are a rebel. And then God does something marvelous here. And we talked about this on Sunday, so I'm just going to kind of fly through this. But suddenly, not only does He tell them exactly how He's going to get them out of their immediate captivity, that is through Cyrus, He begins to unveil, here and and following, greater hidden things. In fact, how He's going to bring Israel to their ultimate consolation. He's hinted at it before. And we have seen through Christian glasses, we've looked back and we've seen Jesus all the way up until now. But God now begins to make it so explicit, so abundantly clear, that His people, Israel, if they will look at their Scriptures, should see this. From this point on out, verse 9 on, leading right into the next section of Isaiah, the Spirit of Christ will reveal the person of Christ. And this is Jesus in the first person. Verse 9, For the sake of my name I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. We talked about Sunday, the patience of Christ. I delay my wrath. His patience that calls us to repentance. Verse 10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. That is the purification of Christ. That He takes us through the hard times, but with His comfort. And the harder the times, the more the comfort. The purification of Christ calls us to persevere. Verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another. That is the personal approach of Christ. 
He calls us to Him. It is all about Him. It is about His name and nobody else's. Verse 12, He says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I have called. I am He. I am the first. I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens, whom I, and when I call to them, they stand together. And that's the preeminence of Christ. He calls, and the very heavens and earth gather and assemble before Him. And He calls us to our knees by His great preeminence. Verse 14, Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He will carry out His good pleasure on Babylon, and His arm will be against the Chaldeans. The Lord loves who? The Lord loves Cyrus. And this gives us a picture of the passion of Christ. Jesus loves those who obey. Bringing us to verse 15, I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called Him. I have brought Him. And He will make His ways successful. Verse 16, Come near to Me, Jesus says. Listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent Me and His Spirit. God the Father has sent God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And if I went through that too fast for you, there's an entire hour, hour and ten minutes of teaching that's online. You can go back and walk through those slowly. Jesus is speaking here. In the first person. And what that tells us, my friends, is Jesus Christ is the only way and there is no alternative to Him. It is only Him and Him alone. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, Kadosh Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. And you can almost hear in reading this the words sticking in God's throat. Emotion pours out as the Lord God, Jesus Christ says, if only... And you hear the same amount of emotion when Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who stones the prophets and kills those who have been sent to you. How I've longed to gather you together under my wings like like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. Here the Lord says, if only, if only. And it's it's not that God didn't know this would happen. He said it would, but He aches and He laments over His people here. He feels a tremendous loss. And I read that and I thought, you know, I wonder how it's going to be for God after everything is said and done. At the judgment of the world, Revelation chapter 20, at the great throne judgment, when all those who want to be judged by their deeds are judged by the Lord, and it ends with them separated from God for all eternity in the fires of hell. Now we read that from a human perspective and go, how how could that happen to all those people? How could God do that? Let me ask you this question. How is God going to handle that? The Creator who made all of these, loved them, gave His life for them, and now has to depart from them. What is that going to be like in the heart of God? Isaiah 65.17 gives us, us great comfort. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. I think God's going to do something for us. 
in the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth, that He is going to, by a work of grace in eternity, keep us from remembering all the pains and afflictions and sorrows from this life. I think He's just going to wipe them away. God's going to take my memory? No. God is going to give you the grace to not carry that stuff for eternity. But He will carry it. We may forget the face or the name or the person who is lost. God will not. And with the passion of a God who says, if only. Don't you for a moment think that you're more worried about lost friends and family than God is. Verse 20. Go forth from Babylon, he says. Flee from the Chaldeans. Declare with the sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. They did not thirst when He led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. And gain, verse 21, is not looking back to the Exodus. It is looking forward to the exiles returning from Babylon across the Arabian desert back to Judah. And we learn something here from Isaiah that we don't get anywhere else. That God provided water for the people as they traveled back to the land. That somehow he struck the rock and caused water to gush from the rock yet again. And Ezra tells us this much, Ezra 8.31, The hand of our God was over us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. But that's all we get description-wise other than this. That he made the water flow out of the rock for them, he split the rock, and the water gushed forth. Speaking of something that would happen, not that did happen. But note this, that in verse 20, God's command, to go back and look at it, go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans. Who is he talking to? Simple answer. Who is he talking to when he says, flee from Babylon? Israel. But not just some of Israel. All of Israel. God commands His entire people, every captive exile, God says, When that moment comes, when Cyrus signs the decree, get out! Run back to the land! I'll provide for you water along the way. I will protect you. Go back to the land. Depart immediately. Every single exile. Run for it. Get out! Did they? No. Remember, we said a couple of Wednesdays ago, just under 50,000 left with Zerubbabel. And about 60 years later, About 1,800 left with Ezra. And another 40 years after that, another group of 50,000 came back with Nehemiah. All told, 100,000 people roughly. But it took them a century to even do that. And when you look at their departure, and the majority did not leave Babylon at all. Those who did took a century, took a hundred years to do it. When God calls you, to the consolation of Christ, leave all the isms of the world and get out immediately. Don't hang around. Get out fast. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. He says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 22, flee from youthful lusts. When God calls you to His consolations, get out of the old life. Don't hold on to the old isms. Let them go. And rush from Babylon into the consolation of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said to Timothy, 
Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And by the way, if you do that, when God says, get out of Babylon and you go, you will never be thirsty. He will provide His Spirit to water you constantly. And He will provide not only the water of His Spirit, but the water will flow from the rock that is Christ. Get out from the old life, run to the new land in the consolation of Jesus, and His Spirit and His rock Jesus will provide for you. And why is He so emphatic about this? Verse 22, There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Well, you can read that two ways. You can read, There's no peace for the wicked! I'm going to get them. Or you can read it the way intended. There's truly no peace for wickedness. Sinful living, rebellion, being in the world and of the world, you will never find peace. There's no peace in that place. No peace for the wicked. The Lord is speaking to Israel at the conclusion of this first third. Jump ahead to Isaiah 57.21. I want you to see the conclusion of the next third, just in case we never get there. Isaiah 57, verse 21. Note what the Lord says. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And that's part of how we know, as, we, as I shared before, that each one of these you know, three sections are actual sections as they end very similar. Okay? We just saw the first one. Let me read them both back to back. Listen, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. That is, says Yahweh. And Yahweh is talking to His people Israel at the conclusion of the first section. At the conclusion of the second section, He says, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Because at the end of this section, which the whole next section we go into is all about Christ. It is all about Messiah. We will hear three more servant songs depicting and describing Jesus in this section. And at the end of it, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It's personal and it's broad. It's not just Israel who's saying this now. It's everyone who accepts and believes in the Christ who is going to be talked about in this section. He extends it further. But look at verse 19 of chapter 57. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Does that sound familiar? Peter said in Acts 2.39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's us. We are the far off. We are the ones who Peter says were not a people and now we are a people. We are the people God gathered from the ends of the earth, the ones who were distant. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And so I leave you with this thought tonight that there is no peace for the wicked, but the good news is the consolation, the comforts of Christ are for anyone who calls on His name. And so when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Lord, you know I love to kid around, I love to pun and joke and, 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 and just laugh together. But we are in such serious times. And your word to us tonight is so absolutely clear and absolutely serious. We live, Father, in what in many ways feels like a modern Babylon. 
with atheism on the rise and intellectualism driving this nation, spiritism on the rise, astrology, all of these things and so many more isms that people are just casting off the truth of your word to pursue all of these damnable things. And God, here we sit in the barn and I pray to you tonight, would you reveal to us in this age and this day how we are to stand for you and give us, Father, strength to stand and mouths to speak and a willingness to declare truth and to honor you in all these things. Father, may we not shrink back. Your word tells us you have no delight in him who shrinks back. May we step up our faith in these last days, trusting you more, more convinced and convicted of the truth, and walking all the while delighting in your comfort, in your consolations. Father, many here are facing various challenges. May we face them with Jesus. And be light and truth in this dark world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.